0: good afternoon and welcome to trading card therapy episode number 15. happy thanksgiving to you and everyone out there who is watching and is in the hobby community so this week we're going to talk about a couple topics having to do with intent the first place i'm going to start is with a recent post i made on my very own personal ig account Layton underscore Sheldon. You can follow me there. It was reposted to the Trading Card Therapy account on IG. And it had to do with, I'm not a hoarder, but I have four Joe Namath rookie cards. And so the first card you can see right here is a PSA 5.5 that's dead nut centered that I picked up recently at the Shriners Baseball Card Convention in Wilmington, Massachusetts. The main reason I bought this card... Is because it has incredible eye appeal for the grade as it's dead nut centered. It really does look like a six or even a little bit higher uh, with very, very minor corner wear. Great contrast, fantastic color, and the price was fair. It wasn't cheap, but fair. And so thank you to the gentleman who sold it to me. And what that did is it kicked off all the wheels in motion for my other three. Joe Namath Rookies, which I want to talk about today and my intent and strategy behind them. And hopefully that will help you as a collector understand that just because you have a couple or several of a particular card or a set, you could just set yourself up for a future opportunity by having several, for example, Joe Namath Rookies, and I'll talk you through that right now. So the first one here is a five and a half as I'm showing off, and I'll show Instagram as well. You can see that beauty. So the reason I bought it, as I just mentioned, was because it really hit me and it had, you know, great eye appeal for the grade, fair enough price, and I figured for me that was going to be the card that I was going to have in my collection as my Nameth Rookie. Um, I also have a signed Nameth Rookie, but we're going to get to that in a minute. So that five and a half purchased caused this four and a half, which I'm about to show you, to be expendable. By expendable, I mean selling it at auction, consigning it, trading it, flipping it, whatever the case may be. I don't need to have four John Ameth rookies. We'll get to the other two in a minute. And so this no longer was going to be my placeholder. You know, I liked it, but I didn't love it. It didn't have great centering. Still a nice card for a four and a half, but I was able to move on from that. And Actually, if you want to have a chance to win this card, you could do so in an upcoming Vintage Breaks 1965 Tops football set break that is now live on our site at vintagebreaks.com and the key hit, the big one, is the Joe Namath Rookie, graded PSA four and a half. But for those of you keeping score and doing math at home, you know that I have two more Joe Namath Rookies, which I'm about to mention. The next one was a card I bought in a fresh collection some time ago and it's bewildered me as to what to do with it. And the reason being is it's a gorgeous card. But it got graded PSA 6, MK. And the MK, for those at home who can see, there's a little bit of a blue streak under the ORNK in New York. You can see it right there. But the card actually presents almost as a near mint card or even a little bit nicer. And so with this card getting the MK designation, I didn't know exactly how I should handle it. I might just get it signed, which is why I've been hanging on to it. So I'm either going to get it signed by Joe Namath, or I might try to regrade it and see if PSA or maybe an SGC will ignore this what appears to be substantial print line in blue under the OR&K in New York. And if I get this signed, I would then sell my other, which I don't have here, my other Joe Namath rookie that is currently signed. And lastly, I have a lower grade Joe Namath rookie and a one and a half but as you can see, it still has pretty good eye appeal. I haven't got around to doing anything with this yet because I thought I was gonna get it signed and I saw the prices that Namath's fees have increased to. And so because they've increased so much, I'm only gonna get likely the nicer six MK sign So here's the PSA one and a half. So if I don't get this Joe Namath rookie signed, I will simply sell it. So no, I do not need four Joe Namath rookies at once, but you can see by having the four and a half and knowing the market, it allowed me to pull the trigger for this beauty, the 5.5, at the Shriners Auditorium recently. Made the 4.5 expendable. This I'm still going to get autographed and if I do, I'll get rid of my signed one. And then this 1.5, which I was going to get signed when I originally bought it, because the market's trended up, I'll likely just flip this out and take that profit and count it towards the 5.5, which wasn't cheap. They're not always as fun and as valuable as the Joe Namath rookies. And I wanted to tell a little bit of a a story. Growing up, I had speculated on 1991 upper deck Bernie Williams rookies. And when I speculated, I think I bought an 800-count box for, you know, a penny and a half, three cents each. And I was at the uh, Freehold Raceway Mall. So I grew up in Manalapan, New Jersey, generally, even though I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And I would piece them out. I remember... A buck each, if he would get hot, buck and a quarter, a buck fifty. And man, I was proud of myself. I'm sitting selling, you know, a few at a time. Someone would come up and want to buy one for maybe each of their kids. And I'm feeling really good because I'm making a very good percentage. You know, in terms of percentage, oh, well, I don't know. Uh, you're making 33 times on your money or 40 times on your money. So what is that, four thousand percent or something insane. And I'm doing this for probably a couple of shows in general. When I would come home from these conventions, um, you know, my dad would drive me off and pick me up. I didn't have a driver's license at that point. He would ask me how I did and I would generally just tell him how much I sold. Not so much how much the things cost or, you know, how much lunch I spent on lunch or whatever the case may be. And I was very proud of coming home and letting him know in particular on the Bernie Williams cards, I was making an incredible percentage, and my dad is really good at math, hears this, and I don't tell him the the money at first. I say, Dad, I hit it really big. I'm very excited about my 1991 Upper Deck Bernie Williams. By the way, not his rookie card. His rookie card is actually 1990, but nonetheless, I'm selling them. I'm feeling good, and maybe there's a weekend where I sell several dozen of them, and my dad asked me a little bit more detail about the show, so I explained to him the Bernie Williams... And the fantastic return um, on, you know, if you will, my investment or whatever you wanted to call it back then. And he's looking at me like, wait a minute. So that's an amazing percentage. You like basically looking at me like I must be rich. I'm like, no, you know, it cost me, I don't know, three cents and I'm selling them for a buck, buck and a quarter, buck 50. And I remember him going like this to me, like the slow clap. And I wasn't feeling so great after that because I could tell he was kind of being sarcastic. I'm like, I don't understand, Dad. I think I did great. He's like, you did in terms of percentage. And this is where that context and perspective comes in. And of course, where your intent comes in. So as far as these Bernie Williams cards go, I'm making, you know, 97 cents, a dollar, a dollar and a quarter, a dollar 50. And my dad's like, you know how many of those you have to sell to make any real money? And you know, Granted, I'm younger. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm like, oh, I see your point. I have to sell a lot of these to even crack making $100. And it was the first time I remember as a kid, even though I was proud that I understood numbers, that just having a very large return to the tune of doubling your money or five-timesing or 20-timesing your money wasn't necessarily fantastic or good enough because it all depends on how much absolute dollars you make. And so if you fast forward from that, that's something that I've incorporated really well into my model for Just Collect, buying and selling vintage cards. Even though I absolutely work on percentages, the more expensive a card or cards become, and the absolute amount of dollars that you're going to make becomes more substantial. I don't really care if I make I'm making it up 15% on a card or 20% on a card or 10% on a card, but if I've been able to make oh I don't know, $5,000 or $1,000, what's the difference if I go and tell my dad I made 150% or if I made 8%? But if I made 1,000 bucks I know that, you know, that's substantial money, whether it be to, you know, pay bills or put into savings or invest in more cards, of course. The lesson learned about that was that you can always make a profit, but there's a big difference between the percentage return or the ROI and the actual amount of absolute dollars you make, right? Many of us would be happy selling a $1 million card for $1.1 million and making $100,000. It'd only be 10%. I'll take that 10% all day long. As far as the Bernie Williams cards, I'm thankful that I've graduated from that. You know, the lesson learned was a fun one and it allowed me to move forward with intent. So when it comes to, for example, the Joe Namath rookies, which you can see the post about them, Uh, and the images on our Trading Card Therapy Instagram account, you can see that your intent is really important when it comes to curating, whether it be a collection, a group of cards, a group of investments. You always want to be thinking ahead. And so admittedly, on the Bernie Williams, I was not. I was just a young, you know, pup. And a lesson was learned in regards to how to move forward and not necessarily always focus on the percentage that I'm making on a card. But the absolute dollars, in many cases, is as vital, if not more important. So someone's asking in the chat, uh, shout out to Nick here, Um, someone is asking about buying more player on game-worn jersey cards plus autos. Can you see that market going up? So it's a very broad question, Nick, and a good one. And what I find amazing is, in the game-used jersey market or the autograph card market, that there's lots of these, if you will, dollar, two-dollar boxes that I see at card shows and conventions. And, you know, you got good names in there. Frank Thomas or, you know, a Trey Young second year, you know, patch card, whatever the case is. And in terms of, like, are they going to go up in the future? I kind of tie that back to the Bernie Williams. So if a card for a buck or two goes up to two or four, you might have made a lot of percentage, but the absolute dollars is not going to be substantial. In terms of the long term, viability of that market increasing, I believe there's segments of it. So for example, Nick, I myself have been collecting some Kobe Bryant game-used jersey cards, particularly the upper deck versions, um, not so much the Panini, uh, just what I enjoyed better when I grew up with. And so I can see already from the few I've been buying that the market's been trending up. I don't know if that's across the board for all game-used jersey and autograph cards, but I would say that depending on what happens with Fanatics taking over um you know the the production of uh you know these different cards under various licenses who knows if there'll be as many or more in the future um and to be fair right like how many Jackie Robinson jerseys or Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth bats are there to go around for these card companies to cut up so at some point you know they become not just a novelty but the way you're describing Nick maybe an investment and in that you know, there's going to be not that many ways for you to own a Babe Ruth bat. And instead of, you know, writing a big check, you can either buy a fractional share from like a rally or a collectible, or you can buy a numbered or a non-numbered version of a Babe Ruth Game News bat card and can actually have it be affordable. Uh, So I think that the more folks that come into the space in the future, you know, as far as like the Babe Ruth and the Jackie Robinson cards, I could see uh, an uptick in those just because the alternative is so very pricey. The next thing I wanted to talk about, tying this into intent with the theme of today's show. So tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Many of us here on Instagram or on YouTube or who are tuned in with me now are going to celebrate. So I wish you all the very best. I hope you're able to relax, rub your belly, fill it up, drink, be merry listen to some good music, spend some time with family, friends, so on and so forth. But make no mistake about it, on Friday, at least in this country, many people refer to it as Black Friday. Now, Vintage Breaks, one of my companies, will be open and will be breaking and we'll have a lot of fun bonuses and incentives and things of that nature going on. But make no mistake about it, ever since I was an 11, 12-year-old kid, there has always been and likely always will be the Thanksgiving weekend card shows. And if you're someone like myself, who's not only an avid card nerd collector, but also doing this professionally, well, you bet your bottom dollar, I can't wait till Saturday or Sunday to go to that show. I have to have the ability to catch the early, be the early bird to catch the worm at these shows because the most amount of, of selection, if you will, the biggest selection is going to be in that first hour. So I'm thinking about on that Friday morning when we wake up from that big turkey and stuffing meal and trying to figure out, should I go to some of the local shows that are going to be happening in the Tri-State area here in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? And believe me, I very much want to, very much. However, I'm curious how many of you out there have the same issue that I do, opportunity cost. So even though you may not do this for a living, you might have a regular job that you have to go to on Friday, or maybe you don't have to go to work on Friday because your company's closed, but you have to do something with your significant other that precludes you from going to that vitally important Thanksgiving day or post-Thanksgiving um, weekend convention. People are always bubbly, they're in a good mood, and why not? You just completed Thanksgiving. You had the day off, likely. You ate until you were content. You saw some family. You spent some time with some friends. Maybe you woke up super early. For that matter, you went out at midnight the day before, meaning on Thanksgiving to the malls and did some crazy stuff. You know, as far as the card show itself, I very much want to go and have a blast or go to the card shows. But then reality sets in. And I'm curious for you out there, how many of you are allowing reality to keep you from going to more conventions. And so for me, I'm able to come into the office or for that matter, work from home on Friday. I'll have emails to catch up with. I'll have phone calls to be uh, returned or to be made. Um, I'll have deals to evaluate, collections to figure out what they're worth and offers to be made, sorting to be done if there's time, planning to do for vintage breaks if time allows. Of course, we're not talking about spending time with the family yet or anything of that nature. And so the kid in me so very badly wants to go on Friday to these card shows. However, I'm curious how many of you out there are tormented like me when you have an expected value that's unknown, right? So your intent is there, but the expected value is unknown in terms of, I don't know if it'll be worth it for me to go to the show. Whether it be as a collector, a dealer, an investor, a hybrid, you know, all of those. um, Make no mistake about it. If I go to a show... Like, I'm going to buy something. It may be a bad pretzel, right? might be an old hot dog, but i got to buy something. I would much rather buy cards. And so what I'm getting to is I could sit in front of my computer all day on Friday and probably buy cards or bid in a variety of different auctions um, and then, you know, bid on eBay or, or hit Buy It Nows and do those sorts of things. But man, isn't there something about being in person, especially now with everything going on, Over the last 12 to 24 months, with the Thanksgiving holiday upon us, I can tell by just me talking with you and connecting, even though no one's talking back, that I'm going to go. It may not be the right decision. It may not be the most financially rewarding. But I can tell you, the day that I stop having fun or being passionate about doing this, I'm going to hang up those proverbial card holders, put away my extra card savers, and move on to something different. So I see our very own Harry from our Vintage Breaks community is on here, and I wanted to um, give him a shout out as well as address uh, his question. Um, Let me just read it real quick. If we start with the premise that PSA is clearly the market leader, in your professional opinion, have any of the other grading companies established themselves as a clear second? Any graders entering the market, we should watch. Thanks for the therapy, Dr. Lane. My pleasure, Harry. So first and foremost, uh, thank you to all of you who have tuned in, not just to today's episode, but to the 14 other episodes of Trading Card Therapy. I very much appreciate it. If you want to find out a little bit more about yours truly, the doctor, um, please tune in to episode one. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can learn a little bit more about uh, who I am and my journey in the baseball card world as a professional treasure card hunter. So Harry, this is my two cents on grading. PSA is going to be rolling out a new lower tier soon. That's not what you're asking about. You're asking about a number two. In my own mind, it's SGC. And the reason is because I'm entrenched, as you know, Harry, in the vintage space. People have started to use SGC for modern as well. I personally have not, but I've been paying attention to the market and its movements and the ebbs and flows, and they absolutely are gaining traction in the modern space as well. Third... I would have said Beckett in the past, but I know they've had some issues in terms of um, getting cards out, price and turnaround and such. And so with that, even if we give them third, I would very much look at companies like CSG or ISG or IGA, and I know there's HGA. And so, Harry, this is the way that I would look at some of the non-number-one, you know, not-the-market-leader even including SGC, which by the way, all the companies I described have durable cases. And so here's the deal. If you're someone who doesn't really care about the resale value of your cards, either now or in the future, well then to me, what are you waiting for? I would give SGC a whirl. I give CSG a whirl. I would give IGA or ISG a whirl. I would give HGA a whirl. Because if there's one particular holder that really grows on you, well then forgetting about retail or return on investment, that's what I would do. But in terms of like the actual aesthetics itself, Harry, I myself personally, I think I've said this many a time on Layton's Loft, a show you can find uh, every Wednesday, generally at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, is SGC, because I really like that black tuxedo. I love the way a white-bordered, particularly at Tito 6 card, looks in that and it frames it out. Um, but make no mistake about it, PSA cards sell for generally the most on average which is why people are gravitating and doing most of their grading with PSA so that's my two cents on that Chris I see here you have a question about the raw card market specifically vintage when speaking from an investment perspective should I be grading these cards you know Chris I would love to um, address that in a future episode so Ken if you don't mind taking a screenshot of that Uh, and Chris we're going to give you a shout out in the future we'll cover that potentially in next week's episode. But with just a minute or two left, I wanted to make sure that um, I took the opportunity to give thanks to not only all of you who have tuned in to either today or the 14 other episodes of Trading Card Therapy, but to each and every one of you who have joined our Vintage Breaks community in the last several years or who have bought or sold cards with me or someone from my staff at Just Collect or any of the countless hundreds or thousands of people that I've met in the hobby the last several years at the National, at bleaker trading events, through friends of friends. Special shout-out to my friend Jason from OTIA Sports, Ryan and Mark. I appreciate um, everyone's friendship, our relationships, the camaraderie. And second to last, I wanted to talk about my staff, everyone from J5 and Robert, who, by the way, have been with me for over 10 years each, to folks like Ken and Matt, who joined me uh, or joined us and our firm, you know, in some cases just for a few months or under a year ago. And then, lastly, a special shout out to my lovely wife, Julie, and of course, my adorable son, Crosby. Um, I wanna give thanks for both of them, specifically my, uh, my wife, Julie, and her putting up with me constantly having to thin the hoard or being a professional baseball card treasure, treasure hunter and, you know, all the dangers that come with that. But seriously, uh, love you, Julie. Thanks to everyone who've tuned in today. And very much looking forward to future episodes of Trading Card Therapy. Thanks, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving.